reading this morning comes from the 73rd Psalm, verses 1 through 20. This is a Psalm of Asaph. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Just as a side note, I think we've all been there before in these verses to follow. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. Their callous hearts, from their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil conceits of their iron of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, How can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree, they increase in wealth. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been plagued. I've been punished every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. Until I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. Our New Testament reading comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. This is entitled, The Parable of the Persistent Widow. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow, widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice, so she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice, and quickly." However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Children, you may go to your respective classes. Let's return to the scripture we read with Bill just a few moments ago from Luke chapter 18. Obviously, we're returning if you're visiting with us, we have been in the gospel according to Luke over the entire last year. Uh, and uh, this morning, we continue that study in Luke 18 with verses 1 through 8. Before we come to God's word, let's pray together and ask him 
to teach us. Our Father, we bow before you. Your priests, all of us together. So one time during the week, when we don't pray individually as priests for the world around us, but we come together to pray with each other, with a host of priests before you, to bow before you. Our Father, we would this morning return and pray for Doug Hay. Thank you for what you've done in his life. Thank you for the health that you've given him, the strength that you've given him. We pray, our Father, that you will continue to heal his body. We thank you for Jim Bennington that he's here this morning, and we ask that you would continue to give him strength. Our Father, we pray for Billy Griggs, that as he's not here, we pray that he would know that he's loved, that the people of Christ Presbyterian Church love him and are praying for him. We thank you for how you've blessed him and blessed us through him. We pray for Priscilla Turner on hospice. We ask that, Father, you would bring physical relief to her. And, Father, we pray that you would continue to give her that indomitable spirit that looks with joy to the future, that looks with anticipation. Father, teach us to so live. We pray for Sheila Noble this morning, Don Jeffrey's mother. Our Father, we pray that you would draw her close to you. You know her physical and spiritual needs, and we pray that you would draw her close. We pray that you would bless Tom as he ministers to her. And now as we open your word, Father, we pray that you would teach us. We know John Sartell, and he's not able to teach so that this will make any difference in our lives. If we are to learn and grow this morning, it must be that by the power of your spirit. If our hearts are to be changed, maybe for the first time, our Father, it will not be the work of whoever stands behind this desk. It will only be by your Spirit. And so we pray together that in these next few minutes, we would hear your voice in our hearts. We pray for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. Praying. When the heavens seem like brass. What if you had been a Christian and a citizen in the Sudan for the last 63 years? I mean, this is real history. Odds are, if you had been in the Sudan, you would have been killed or left homeless or lost your children or lost your parents or sold into slavery, or forced into a national or rebel army, or been deprived of food to the point of starvation. And it goes on. The U.S. government's Sudan Peace Act 
of 2002, accused Sudan of genocide for killing more than 2 million civilians, primarily in the South Sudan, mainly Christians. In the most recent war in Sudan since 2013, over 400,000 have been killed. A vast number of those Christians. So you're a Sudanese in the middle of that chaos. You prayed. There was no deliverance. You prayed. And the war and, and destruction continued unabated. What would you do? Think about the Christians who were sent to Hitler's concentration camps because of their faith or sent to Stalin's Siberian gulags because of their faith or sent to Mayo's re-education camps because of their faith. If you would have been with your brothers and sisters in those awful places, in the darkness of those places, would you have continued to pray? In long, hard periods of trouble, in your own personal life, have you ever given up on God? Have you sat at the bedside of a wife or husband or daughter or son suffering from a long and protracted illness? There's agonizing pain. The, perfect, perfect, the person suffering, a Christian for many years, you prayed, your family prayed, the church prayed, but it seemed as if the heavens were brass. That phrase is found in Scripture. It's also found in Greek mythology, but it's found in Scripture in Deuteronomy 28, 23. And the heavens over your head shall be bronze and the earth under you shall be iron. God's talking about what happens in his judgment. The he sends a drought and the earth becomes iron. But he said, when you pray, the heavens will be brass. And in the midst of the trouble, in the midst of your pain and sorrow, in the midst of whatever the bad situation is, the awful situation is, at the same time, you notice that a man you've known for years is known for cheating. And lying. You know him. He's made millions and is selfish and arrogant. He's married, but he's a known womanizer. He does drugs. He has powerful political contacts and is a celebrity in the community. He has great wealth and lives a life of wealth. What do you think as you sit at the bedside of your husband or wife? or son or daughter and watch them suffer for two or three years while this man prospers in evil. In long and hard periods of trouble, have you ever given up on God? Look at Luke 18.1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. If we've been in the position of the Sudanese or in the position of those really, really hurting in the middle of darkness that 
where there seems no relief. This parable is for us. First, I want you to see in this passage that Jesus says we have a plain choice, a plain choice. Look at verses one through three. And he told them a parable to the fact that they always ought to pray and not lose heart. He said in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. What are the choices in hard times? What are the choices when injustice, when injustice has you by the throat and you're helpless? This widow was helpless. She had no money with which to, with which to bribe a judge. She had no husband to help her plead her case. In her culture, she was hurting. There was no help. She was by herself. What was her what were her choices? Then he told his disciples this parable to show that they should always pray and not give up. You can have faith. That's one choice. Or you can just give up. You can say, and the widow could pray this prayer. There is no justice. There is no God. I'm speaking words into the wind and they're blowing back in my face. I'm praying into the nothingness and no one hears except me. And as I listen to the futile words of my own anguish, she could have prayed that prayer. Ted Turner. When he was young, he wanted by his own admission, to be a Christian minister or missionary. These intentions came to an end when his sister had an illness that would prove terminal. Ted Turner prayed for his sister. She did not get well. He prayed. She died. Turner chose to say, I am out of here. Death won over God and Turner gave up on God. That's not praying. Turner was not praying. He was telling God what to do. You did not do what I told you to do. So I will no longer have anything to do with you. Think of the absurdity of telling an omniscient, omnipotent God whose providence is more complex than the most complicated physics equation of the universe. Think about that. Think about assuming that you know more about what should happen in your life than this omniscient and omnipotent God. Think of the absurdity of, of a sinful rebel saying to God, God, I am deserving. I am deserving of every good thing. I'm not deserving for these hard times. In contrast to Turner, Job lost his wealth. Then his children were killed. Then he lost his health and was miserable in his pain. Job prayed. Job kept his faith. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. He refused to give up. But that's the temptation that's always before us. 
It's not new. We looked at Psalm 73 this morning. We read Psalm 73 this morning, a Psalm of Asa. Go back to it. Look at verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Their pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out of their fat or through their fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They're, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues. I like this. Their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in these. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Those, the widow could have said those words. I strive to be a godly widow. I've lost my husband. I've lost my support. I'm helpless and evil. People have taken advantage of me. I've suffered a great injustice. I'm in a world where evil men prosper and good people are enslaved. Why should I continue to be godly? Why should I continue to do what's right? Why should I continue to pray? You look at this passage and you've got a plain choice. Secondly, I want you to see an obvious contrast. Look at verse 2. He said in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. But finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? The judge first, the judge in this parable does not represent God. In fact, it's the very opposite. It's a contrast. Jesus uses the judge as the very opposite of God. Look at verse 2. He did not fear God and he had no compassion toward other men and women. This judge was out for himself. He could be bribed. He could be bought. There was no grace in his heart. He felt nothing. He was indifferent to this poor widow. He looked at her with complete apathy. The judge helped the widow. Why? Simply because he didn't want to be bothered anymore. She was a nuisance. He found in her favor just to get rid of her. In contrast, in contrast, God cares. God cares about his own. Will not God bring justice for his chosen one? God cares for those who call out for him. This parable is about two things. It's about the care of God for his people, and it's about the justice of God. Jesus was not saying, you must pester God in your prayers. You just keep pestering God like this 
poor woman pestered the judge. That's not what he's saying. He was saying, be like the widow. Don't give up. Keep praying. You should keep praying because you need to pester him to get what you want. No, you continue to pray because he's a God of grace. He's your father. Our prayers, how do, when Jesus said, how do, to, when the disciples asked him how to pray, what did Jesus say? When you pray, how do you begin? Almighty God, sovereign God, ruler of the universe. He said, you call him father. You call him father. He's our father. Look at Matthew 7, verse 9. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone, or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And then in Romans 8, 32, so that the basis for our speaking with God Continuing praying, he says, our father, he cares. How much does he care? Look at Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? If he's given his son for us, will he not give us a bowl of Wheaties or strawberries and cream? God is not only our father who gave his own son for our sins. He's just. He is a just God. How do we know that in the end, every injustice, all of us have been to this place. We, we, we've looked at something and said, that's just not just. That's just not just. How do you know that in the end, every injustice will give an accounting? How do we know there will be a perfect justice? The answer to the question is shocking. Where's the clearest example of the length that God will go to bring about justice? What's the greatest example? Well, let me ask you a question. We're sinners. I say to you often, if you knew my heart, you would not want me. You, you would look at me and say, John, what are you doing that for? But I know you, and I know your heart, and I can say, what are you doing sitting in church? We're sinners. All of us have shaken our fist in the face of God. All of us have rebelled. All we like sheep have gone astray. If if I were to ask the question, are you guilty? All of us would raise our hands. Yeah, I'm guilty. Then how can God, if you're guilty, how can God let you go free? How is it that a just God can forgive you? Look at Romans 3.25. You don't look at anything else this morning. Look at this. God presented him as a sacrifice. Who? Jesus. Through faith in his blood. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his love. No, that's not what it says. 
In another place in Romans, he said, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But here, he said he did this to demonstrate, he did this to demonstrate his justice. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. You say, John, what are you getting at? I'm saying that Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. He was, he was crushed for, he was pierced for our iniquities. He was crushed for our transgressions. Who crushed him? The sin didn't. Who crushed him? We didn't. God did. How far, you know, what's the greatest illustration of the justice of God and the perfection of, of that justice? When sin fell on his own son, when all my lies, when all of our, my immorality fell on Jesus, God didn't say, that's my son. I, I can't. He heard his son cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he descended into hell. He's just. Unlike the judge in Luke chapter 8, God is compassionate. He cares. He's your father. And he is just. A plain choice, an obvious contrast, a sudden coming. Look at verse 6. And the Lord said, hear what the, un hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will not, will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nonetheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Sometimes God brings justice right now in this world on evil, and we see it. Sometimes when we've suffered great anguish, the Lord allows us to see some reason for that suffering. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. He had been talking, we saw this several weeks ago when we, in the passage, just before this passage, he'd been talking about, Jesus was talking about the coming of his kingdom, remember? He told the Pharisees that his kingdom was already present in the here and now. He said, the kingdom of God is among you. But then in that same passage, he turned to the disciples and he said, the kingdom is not only here and now, but it's a coming kingdom. One day I will return and the kingdom with all of its power and glory and justice will be revealed and completed on that day. Look at Luke 17, 22. And he said to his disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the son of man, but you'll not see it. He says, Peter, you're going to be hung on a cross upside down in Rome. John, you're going to be dipped in boiling oil and sent to Patmos, in exile to Patmos. In your suffering, you will be in great injustice and you will want to see me. You will want, you will want to see justice. But he says, I'll not, it won't be time. You will not see it. Not then. Look at Revelation 6, 9 through 11. You see this again. When he opened the fifth seal, he saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness 
they had borne. And they cried out. Now here are saints that have gone on before. So they've been martyred and they're crying out to God. Oh, sovereign Lord, how holy and true. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. Now this answer is astounding. Until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When are you going to give us justice, God? God says, not now. He said, there, there are others to be martyred. There's others to suffer like you suffered. But he says in verse 8 of our text, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. That doesn't mean he'll give it right now. Speedily does not mean keep praying and soon after you pray, God will answer your prayers right here in this life. He's saying that when I return, you will see it speedily. It will happen and it will happen quickly. Go back to Psalm 73. This is really important. Remember the, the man 73 is just about to stray. He's about to deny the faith. He's about to tell his children it's no use. But look what he says. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to be a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. What's he saying? I went to your sanctuary, God, and I found out what happens in the end. I found I saw their final destiny and their end comes sudden. When I was writing this, I thought of, about a man named Edie Amin. Some of you will remember him. He came to power in Uganda in 1971 through murder and cruelty. He was in the midst of Africa. Hitler and Mao and Stalin all rolled into one. He only reigned eight years. But in those eight years, he killed 500,000 Ugandans. Most were civilians. He personally reveled in the killing. It was bloody. In 1979, he was driven from power by the Tanzanian forces. Then he lived in luxury in Saudi Arabia until his death in 2003. Many people were angry when he was merely thrown from power. There was nothing like the Nuremberg trials. There was no accounting given. They became angrier when they saw him in Saudi Arabia in films, living in luxury. When he died in 2003, I heard from the news, I heard from people that knew the inside story. He didn't, I heard them say he, he didn't receive justice for his crimes. He escaped justice. People, what this says in Luke 8 is, Edie Amin, 
did not escape justice. You will see a day when every crime, when every sin will give an accounting to God. A plain choice, an obvious contrast, a sudden coming, and finally a just conclusion. Verse 8, this is the word of the Son of God. I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith. There will be no injustice left without an accounting. Either our sins are accounted for in Jesus. I mean, think about this. Eating means going to stand before God. All of us are. And we're either going to be we're either going to be we're going to we're going to stand robed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Or we're going to stand in the filth of our own sins. Either the reckoning of our sins came at Calvary or the reckoning is coming in judgment. If the Father punished Jesus when Jesus stood before him with our sins, do you really think He's going to let Edie, Amin, or anyone else not account. But then the last words of the parable. And he had to be looking at his disciples and looking at us. He said, when I return, Peter, John, Christ Presbyterian Church, when I return, Will I find that you have given up? Or will I find you pray? Our hymn is most appropriate. How firm a foundation. 